Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or words blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what He promises, and the so clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, Lord he gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology. That is what we do here at Theology Medicine Blues. We're so glad you did. Join us again for another episode. We've been doing this show now for, man, close to four years. And uh, absolutely have had a blast doing this show and just have had some incredible guests on. That's the 
that's probably the most uh, the best part of the show. I, I often find myself as I'm driving listening to episodes of Theology Matters, and uh, it's not because of me, folks. <laughs> because of it's because of the guests. So when you find yourself listening to your own show, I think you you know you're you're, you're do, you got a good show. Of course, again, that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with our incredible guests. Folks, we're glad you could join us today, Thursday. Let's see here, get the get, get the exact date here. It is June 9th and was a, well, not too bad, I guess, but it was, it was a hot one today. I think it was probably mid-80s out here in uh, the Carolinas, maybe low 90s. I believe the next few days we're supposed to be getting a big heat wave coming in and and I uh, saw one one of these days uh very soon it's supposed to hit around 97 so got my little girl a little swimming pool and we got that all set up so she was out there just having a blast rocking and rolling in the swimming pool so glad you guys could join us we have a wonderful show for you guys today uh this is a show I've wanted to do for a long time uh, many who who know me personally know that um, I have a strong desire um, to see apologetics in the church. Um, but even more than that, my desire is to really be a pastor one day. Uh, I never wanted to be a pastor. I never really desired that. Uh, my father was a pastor, and uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I always had so many questions, you know, these questions of science, uh, faith, dinosaurs, cavemen, you know, reliability of the Bible. These things were just real questions for me. They were real hurdles to the faith. And uh, in all my years as a believer, I, I never knew a Christian, uh, and especially a pastor, that knew how to answer uh, a lot of those objections. And I remember one night, I was taking a class. I was at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go to school at. And I was basically thinking, you know, what I would like to do with my life is um, I, I love apologetics. This is a gift that God has given me. It's a love that I have. Maybe I'll just go around at different churches and just teach on apologetics. You know, this was before Ratio Christie had started. Uh, that's who uh, myself and my wife are um, uh, missionaries with. And um, up here at the local campus. And I thought, you know, I might be one of these guys that the pastors call in to do different teachings. You know, the pastor, uh, remember when the Da Vinci Code was really hot, uh, pastors would call guys in, apologists in, to come and do the teachings um, to the church, basically. They would have the the apologists come in to do some of the hard lifting, and uh, I thought maybe this would be the road I would go down. I would just get trained as an apologist, be a lay church member. Um, I always loved the local church. I always saw a very important. Uh, I, I always saw it as very important to be a part of a local church. I never thought, um, you know, just do apologetics and leave the local church out of it. I always always was connected and, and uh, belonged to a local church. But I, I just, from all the pastors that I knew, I think it was just two different worlds. And I didn't see how those worlds went together until one day at Southern Evangelical Seminary, taking a church history class. 
this was back when it was a free uh, free course. This was before I even started working on the degree. And uh, a man by the name of Larry Blythe came in. And Larry Blythe was a pastor at uh, the time Southern Evangelical Church. And he was a few minutes late, you know. Uh, class started, I think, at 6, and he come walking in about 6.15, and we're waiting on him. And uh, as good students, uh, you know, we loved we loved uh, Professor Blythe. Uh, you know, we started ribbing him a little bit for being late and that. And uh, he goes on to tell us the reason he was late was he was uh, in a meeting. Basically, he had a couple Jehovah's Witnesses show up to his house. And uh, Larry had a has a has, I don't know if he still does, but at one time had a wonderful ministry uh, to Jehovah's Witnesses and to those who were trapped in the colds. Uh, but to just listen to him talk and how he spent like two hours uh, engaging with these Jehovah's Witnesses on the doctrine of the Trinity and just going point by point by point theologically with these guys, I was impressed. I mean, I was blown away. And I thought, that's what I want to do. That right there is what I want to do. God used that to change my life and really gave me a a passion uh, to be an apologist. Uh, but to also be a pastor and a theologian. And those are things, you know, I'm working on. That doesn't just uh, come overnight. It's years of, of schooling and training, and and uh, that's, the, the, that's just the road God has put me on. Those are the passions that he's put in my heart, and um, that's just kind of the road I'm on. So we're going to be talking with my friend Thomas McCutty. He is a, he's a pastor. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the role of apologetics in the church. Stay with us for that. He's going to be on here in about 20 minutes. What we're going to do real quick, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to shift gears. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've been up to, what we've got coming up, and uh, just a few things Ratio Christie's got going on, some things that you may want to be uh, thinking about starting uh, yourself uh, where you're at. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being, where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns that point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance. And you've got a veil that includes one side. And you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. 
but it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Darwinian evolution and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot, it takes you some way, you know, it's closer to the kingdom, but if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me amongst many of his other books. Last weekend, they did the Reason Rally up in the D.C. area. And this is, uh, I want to say the third or fourth, might be more than that that they've done, but it is the largest gathering of atheists in the country. Meet there every year to celebrate Reason. And I was just reading uh, an article by uh, someone who had been there, and they were saying how uh, he was surprised that they had started doing the Pledge of Allegiance, um, but it was, uh, he said the highlight of doing the Pledge of Allegiance with this group is when they all omit the under God part. So, yeah, the Reason Rally, a lot of atheists, um, you know, the, this is a thing. Atheists make up a pretty minority percentage of the population. Uh, especially in America, uh, but they are growing. I mean, they are definitely growing. Um, I think probably if you were to look at the average uh, atheist percentage on universities, probably a lot higher, obviously, than that of uh, the general public. But atheism is on the rise, for sure. And the rhetoric, you know, you talk about the new atheists, and, uh, you know, really what's new with the atheists is the rhetoric, uh, the claims, the tone, the anger. That seems to be ratcheted up quite a lot. Uh, the arguments, not so much. And uh, it's really you don't see the – and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think that is the case. Because in days past, when you had the atheists like Anthony Flew, uh, J.L. Mackey, uh, George Smith, Michael Martin, these guys, guys were very brilliant, academic, uh, just high-powered philosophers. And though they did not agree with people like Thomas Aquinas and, uh, you know, you could do your list of your classical Christian philosophers as well as present-day thinkers like Plantinga and Geisler and Craig, etc., Though they didn't agree with them, they respected them. They realized that the theistic position uh, was defensible. It's not, it's not a stupid position, right? Uh, the ontological argument, uh, you know, Thomas's third way, etc. these things are not, uh, you know, something, you know, knuckle-dragon cavemen are coming up with. And so they didn't respect, they didn't, they didn't, agree with the conclusions, but they respected the thinkers. Well, today, you know, you, you have like the four horsemen. Um, Hitchens, of course, passed on, but, you know, you'd have Sam Harris and Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss and, and all these guys. And what you see with a lot of them is, uh, outside of Dennett and um, 
Sam, Sam Harris is, well, sort of we're scientists. And I think Sam Harris is, uh, works in like neuroscience. Um, and so they don't have, they don't have a very good foundation in philosophy and they have this kind of, uh, scientism where unless you can, you know, test, taste, touch, observe, run things through the scientific method, uh, it's not a very good way of knowing something. And uh, present-day atheist philosophers have criticized criticized this a lot, actually. Uh, Michael Ruse is probably one of the most outspoken uh, atheist philosophers who really uh, took Dawkins to task. He's taken, uh, I believe, Krauss to task. Uh, also, there's another atheist philosopher by the name of, not, I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, but it's, I believe it's Massimo Pigliusi. And uh, Massimo is both, has, he's a brilliant guy. I believe it's two doctorates, one in biology, one in philosophy. This guy's the real deal. This guy is uh, a brilliant guy. But he wrote a whole article. I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been. I think it was against um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, where Tyson was basically going after philosophy and saying it's it's useless. Um, you know, philosophers are basically just spending their time uh, gazing at their navels while the scientists are doing the real work. And uh, you know, Massimo took great exception to that. Uh, again, he's an atheist as well, so he's not, you know, some Bible-thumping Baptist. Uh, but he took great exception to that and uh, proceeded to take him out to the woodshed and uh, uh, drive the point home, if you will, in his article. And he rightly points out, look, you can't even do science without realizing, without, you know, <laughs> try to put... Science is the superior category of how we get all of our knowledge. Science rests on numerous philosophical assumptions, such as the laws of logic, such as the uniformity of nature, such as things like uh, there's external minds outside of my own. These are all things that science assumes can't be proven through the scientific method. Uh, And so I'm thankful for those uh, atheist philosophers what you'll see is, again, I think um, the reason there's a big distinction between the new atheists and the old is uh, most of the new atheists are the scientists. And most of the old ones that were doing it were, were um, academic philosophers. And so uh, the arguments were rigorous and brilliant. If anybody's read Anthony Flew, Remember in uh, seminary reading his uh, parable of the gardener, the invisible gardener. Google that sometime. <laughs> that is a powerful, powerful uh, piece that he wrote. It's been responded to and it's been answered, but um, Flew was a genius. Flew was an absolute genius. So, we need Christian apologetics, I guess is what I'm driving at. You have uh, atheism in the country that's going up and up and up and up and up, and uh, the, the rhetoric's going up and up. And, uh, again, if you go to the college campuses, college campuses largely um, 
atheistic. Uh, there's, you know, a good mixture of pantheism as well. Uh, but there's a lot of atheism on these campuses. Naturalism kind of is an underlying, uh, or underlying uh, assumption. And so we need Christian apologetics. And uh, I was blessed uh, by my good friend Scott Davis, who uh, lives in town here, pastor of Northside Baptist here in Rock Hill, uh, and has invited us, uh, Ratio Christi, to come for uh, three weeks and do a series of talks on different issues in Christian apologetics. So we're going to be doing uh, what is Christian apologetics. I did that last night. We'll talk about that for a moment. And uh, we got coming up, we're going to do uh, God and science. Um, you know, is, is science and faith opposed? Are they at odds? Can a person believe that the Bible is the word of God and, and still be a scientist or do science or study science? Or are these things opposed? Um, does, uh, has faith, uh, the, the Christian faith, contributed anything to the sciences? Uh, does, does, does theism support anything in the sciences, such as a beginning of the universe, how about? Or, oh, I don't know, a fine-tuned universe. Uh, how about uh, information theory and complexity in life uh, from the macro level to the micro level. Uh, we'll be looking at that. And in our last talk, we're going to be looking at uh, the Bible. Is it an old, irrelevant book? We're looking at the, at the reliability, uh, specifically, of the New Testament. I was grateful to be able to get into this church. I was very thankful for that. And I'm thankful for pastors that see the need to train their people into apologetics. A very large church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area who has a very popular pastor. And uh, it's a church that has numerous campus websites, or um, sorry, not websites, but satellites, thousands of people. They've written, you know, manuals on how to do uh, instantaneous baptisms, etc., one of the things, as you watch uh, this particular church and others like it, is the focus is all on on me. It's all about me. I'm God's MVP. I'm his first choice. It's all about me. Very rarely do you find uh, the biblical text uh, expounded and exegeted. There's a reason they're walking around and they don't have a Bible in their hands. Um, there's a reason, you know, there's two or three at the most verses read at a lot of, th a lot of times at these kind of churches. There's a reason why there's so much focus on entertainment and music and the light shows, etc., and not much attention at all on the Word of God, not much attention all, at all on uh, rightly exegeting the text. And I think that's because um, they may not say it, but they don't think that the Bible itself is sufficient. You know, uh, if you just stand up and preach for an hour, well, people are going to leave. That's boring. So you have to make it relevant. You have to make it exciting. And I'm going to tell you guys, 
this is a problem. This is a problem because what we're doing is we're making converts and they're believing things, but they they don't know why they believe these things. They don't know that it's true. And these same young people that are getting hooped up and and whipped up and do excitements on Sunday, that's great. But when they go to the college class on Monday and they're in their science class and they're being told, you know, uh, don't need God because the universe is eternal or uh, the multiverse explains where we came from. The multiverse explains the fine-tuning um, you know, the Bible's not the word of God when they go to their other, you know, their literature classes or go to the philosophy class and being told that, uh, you know, if God was so loving and caring and such a good God, why is there evil and suffering? These are the things they're being hit with. And when they're being hit with these things, simply giving them these feel-good sermons that are all about them, it's not working not working. I suggest people go, you can go to crossexamined.org. Crossexamined.org. Ministry run by Frank Turek. And they've shown, study after study, 75% of Christian kids who grow up in a Christian home, they were at Sunday school, got the gold stars for memorizing their verses, they were at the youth group, you know, and, um, you know, I don't want to sound too critical because I, I think there are some very good churches, but there are a lot of churches where youth group is nothing but a holding tank with pizza and rock music. And they're not being taught and they're not being trained how to think. And they don't know how to engage the culture and they don't know how to counter the arguments that they're being hit upon. And so this is why it's important folks, we have to teach our church apologetics. The pastor has to bring these things into the pulpit. You have to teach the youth these things. You know, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with just excitement, emotionalism, feelings, etc., and you can never get into any depth, because you're, you know, you're afraid people will leave, uh, then that's, uh, that's about as far as it's going to be able to go. And when they get to the college, when they get to the university, they're not going to be able to think critically. They're not going to be able to evaluate the arguments. And so, you know, if you're a pastor, we need to train our people how to think. We need to bring apologetics into the pulpit. We need to bring apologetics into the church. Don't think that your youth are too too uh, immature or not ready for that yet, because they are. When you look at these studies, 75% that leave, uh, it's not due to, you know, we couldn't find enough community. It's due to intellectual doubt. You know, I remember meeting with a young lady here in town. We were trying to see if we could rent a, a room uh, for our Ratio Christie meetings. And I laid out this amazing case for why young people need apologetics, why, uh, why we need that in the, in the youth group and why the college ministries need that. 
And at the end of laying out what I thought was a really good case for the need for apologetics, her response was uh, basically, I couldn't disagree more with you. Christianity is all about the heart. It's not about the head. And she went on to say how when she was in college, the reason she had walked away was because of community. Well, you know, folks, maybe I could suggest it's not one or the other, but it's both and. It's not uh, a head versus a heart thing. It's both. Both we, we should have heart. We should have emotions. We should have feelings. We need to love one another. That's, that is very powerful. You know, there is something about that. My wife had received a call from a friend this week. She grew up with this young lady in high school, and uh, this young lady's fallen on some real hard times. And she's in an area now where she doesn't have a car, she can't get help with her kids, um, you know, she doesn't have money for groceries, etc. Well, the, the local churches are not helping her out. They won't come get her and take her to church. They won't help her with groceries. They, they're not helping her. But guess who is? The Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses have moved in. They're at her house every week. They're cleaning her house. They're taking her and getting her groceries. They take her to church. They're involved. They show that they care. Right? So I'm not saying there's not a place for feelings or for emotions or for caring. There is. But see, uh, you have to have both because there's a lot of wonderful people out there that have a lot of uh, good moral teachings. But at the end of the day, that is not a test for truth. You know, I grew up in Utah where the majority of it was Mormonism. And I have family that are Mormons. Some of the nicest people you'll meet on the planet. Utah is a wonderful place to live because it is, uh, you know, infiltrated with a lot of biblical principles. But morality, and that is not a test for truth. And that's why we need both and. It's not one or the other. So if you're a pastor, if you're a youth pastor, stay, stay with us. Uh, join us for the next hour and a half or so as we're going to look into this issue of uh, apologetics in the church. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick two-minute break. We'll be back with Pastor Thomas McCuddy, and we're going to look at this issue of the church and apologetics. Stay with us. Having talked about expositional preaching, I don't want people to think it doesn't matter what you're actually saying. That the only thing that matters is that you're opening the Bible, reading it, and claiming you're explaining it. No, I want to kind of nail down the product as well. I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually consistent with what is in the Bible. Because the Bible has very specific content. God speaks through his word to reveal himself to us. And that means we can get it wrong. So in our preaching and in our teaching in our churches, we want to make sure and get it right. The term biblical theology can be used in two ways, either theology that's biblical, what some people sometimes call systematic theology, or uh, biblical theology, which is a, a method of studying the scriptures as one story culminating in the person and work of Christ. God has revealed himself progressively through scripture. So there's a picture being built up through thousands of years of God's interaction with his people, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing how all God's purposes come together and focus in Christ. It's as we have a sense of the, of the whole of Scripture that we're able to rightly then sort of divide and apply the parts of Scripture and to live more consistently 
uh, in God's will and uh, to live more consistently uh, by His grace. I think it's extremely important for pastors to know how the entire story of the Bible fits together. So that any particular text that they're looking at, uh, they not only understand that the immediate meaning of that text, they understand how it fits into the whole. That prevents us from, from doing all sorts of terrible things to Scripture, like ripping things out of context, misapplying, uh, making false promises. So biblical theology is understanding these great themes through the Scripture that God has developed in history, uh, through the history of Israel and then in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the apostles that's recorded in the rest of the New Testament, and teaching those things clearly in our, our preaching and believing them ourselves. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented... How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, folks, welcome back. Here we are uh, at about uh, 6.30, and uh, we are going to bring our guests on to discuss this important topic of apologetics in the church. Let me go ahead kind of tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, Pastor Thomas McCuddy is a native of Memphis, Tennessee, currently serves as the senior pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. Thomas has a bachelor's in mathematics, a master's in apologetics and biblical studies from SES, and is currently working on a doctorate of ministry also at SES. Uh, Thomas works part-time at the... uh, Carolina College of Biblical Studies in Fayetteville as a professor of apologetics and coordinator uh, of the apologetics minor, as well as serving as director of curriculum development for Norm Geisler International Ministries. Thomas has spent more than 15 years uh, ministering to youth in the church and parachurch organizations, as well as the last two years as a pastor, and he seeks to equip believers of all ages both to live and defend the faith. Pastor Thomas, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. All right, man. So glad to have you join us on this show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know, I have been wanting to do a show uh, like this for, for quite a while. Uh, I've got a, got a big heart for getting theology in the church and, uh, you know, I want to be a pastor myself and actually be ordained here uh, in the next month with the oh, uh, Southern nice. Baptist Convention. Yeah, so uh, really love to see apologetics integrated into the church. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity to have you on the show and talk about this for a little bit. So 
anything that I missed uh, left out? You, you you married and have kids, I assume? I'm married, been married, uh, celebrating, uh, just celebrated uh, 15 years. Got two kids, a uh, six-year-old boy and a uh, year-and-a-half-old boy. And uh, we are homeschooling family, and uh, we, and as you read my bio, um, I pretty much don't watch sports or any other TV. That's how it all balances out in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, uh, that's wonderful. That uh, little one-and-a-half-year-old will keep you busy, I'm, I'm sure. I've got a three-year-old, and uh, yeah, definitely no time for TV or anything else with a three-year-old. You know, not unless it's Thomas the Train. So, so. <laughs> Strawberry shortcake on my end. So, Well, uh, is it okay if I call you Thomas? Yes, please. Okay, Thomas. Tell us a little bit. How did you get involved? Uh, did, did you grow up in a Christian church? Um, can you give us your background and how you got interested in apologetics and how you ended up at uh, SES? The uh, long story made, not as long, would be I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and by that Memphis, Tennessee, I mean inner city Memphis, not the nice suburbia that people normally think of. (laughs) Um, Places like uh, Walgreens and Kmart didn't even last in my neighborhood. So that was a little of of where I grew up, and I did not grow up going to church. I did not have a typical Christian background. I did go, I was bussed out to the county to a private school because back in those days, um, if you wanted to go to another school outside your district, that was all. You, that, that was your only choice. So I went out there to a private Christian school, um, mainly just for uh, better opportunities, given from where I was in interstate Memphis. And um, it was there that I really heard the Bible stories, and I remember thinking, you know, is this stuff true? But I never... Like I said, I didn't really have, I didn't go to church. My grandmother went to church, and my, my grandfather and my, my aunt went to church. But, and I, I do remember, it was my sixth grade graduation. I remember walking out, and I remember thinking, after six years of Bible stories at school, mind you, not church. It was once a week. Her name was Miss Debbie. She would come in, and she would give us uh, the flannel graph Bible stories, you know. And I remember at my sixth grade graduation, I said, you know, this praying thing is a good idea. Maybe I should do it on my own. So... I just started praying every night. I didn't know any better. I was just, well, what do I want? So I just went to my laundry list. And a couple months later, I got to thinking, you know what? I should probably read the Bible on my own. And so I'm like, well, what do I do? I read read one chapter a night, and I basically read through the entire New Testament twice and through the Psalms and Proverbs twice, just reading one chapter a night. And it was through all this that I basically – uh, it was it was my middle school Bible teacher who gave us just one of those little tracks. It's like blue lettering. It's nothing fancy like you have now, and it talks about the commitment to Christ. And I had I believed. I mean, I I accepted the fact that God exists, that Jesus died for my sins. I would have told you that you know I love God. You know, just like my parents who don't go to church. We just we just love God. Um, but we weren't doing anything with it. And I recognized that with this little blue track that said, you know, if you're believer you follow in baptism and you commit your life and I remember thinking if this stuff is true you need to either be all in or get out there's no middle ground so the middle schooler not from not in church service there wasn't music I didn't even know what a youth group was 
I was just in my bedroom, and I'm like, okay. And I remember, I said, God, I want to seal this deal. I want you to know that I'm, I'm in this, that, you know, what what do I need to do? <laughs> just kind of, you know, uh, let's just make sure. I was like, if there's any doubt, you know, I really want to be saved. I believe all these things, you know, and, and I know I'm supposed to be baptized, so I'll talk to my grandmother. So I uh, went to my grandmother and said, hey, I want to go, go to church. I want to get baptized, and told her what was going on. And so she took me to church, and, um, unlike the others, <clears throat> there was a whole group being baptized at that time, and they were like, "Who are you? We're, you weren't at the youth rally." I was like, "No, I'm I'm just being obedient. I'm just <laughs> trying to obey." And they're like, "What?" So I got baptized when I was in the eighth grade, and that's when I started going to church, and that began my my time learning what you know. I learned what a youth group was. I learned um, you know just just I was really just a Sunday morning Christian. That was only my only time my grandmother went. Um, you know, I, I was regular, like I always made sure I went and it was in high school. Uh, I met some other teenagers and they invited me to their church and I started going like Wednesdays and Sundays and got involved there. And the youth pastor there, he offered that on a one Wednesday night, once a month, he'd let the teenagers teach. And I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm game for that. Now that I'm a sophomore in high school and, um, I just started teaching because no one else would do it. And I was teaching once a month. And by the time my senior year of high school came around and he left and took a church in Missouri, the church basically handed the position over to me as acting youth director because I had been teaching. I knew the bus routes and you know, I knew everything. And that was my baptism by fire into youth ministry at age 17. And from there, I went on and, and got my degree in mathematics. As I said, I went to Middle Tennessee State University and it was there, all my friends in the math program, they're either Muslim, atheist, or Hindu. There was a small pocket of Christians. And wow. uh, so, I mean, th- this is this is who I interacted with. And, you know, of course, I'm very bold and just like, hey, you know, you know what, what you believe is kind of messed up. Like, let, let's chat about this. And so uh, we would talk and, and, you know, I want to find out. I had, you know, met Muslims. So I'm like, okay, what do Muslims believe? And uh, I mentioned this, actually, on an, on an article I wrote for the SES blog, how there was an Iranian-born, Turkish-raised music major. Her name was Seppi, and we would we had all kinds of conversations. And she, uh, I just remember one particular one where I was I was going to try to try to finally uh, throw her off because she was self-proclaimed atheist, uh, even though having grown up in a Muslim country, she rejected Islam. And she said, uh, in her words, atheism works for her. And I said, okay let's talk about this, and we were talking about, you know, she's like, well, you can worship whatever you want to, and I put my cell phone up on the, the desk, and I'm like, can I worship this cell phone as God? And she says, why not? And I'm sitting there thinking, that's not what you're supposed to say. As, like, anyone can see this, so how can you not see this? And I'm like, I, I didn't I didn't get it. Like, why was this, what was the malfunction that she would right. just, just claim that you could worship this cell phone? So I began reading up on relativism, and my first book was uh, Greg Kokel and uh, Francis Beck with uh, Feet for a New Planet in Midair. Because uh, I'm yeah. I need, okay, well I'm I'm learning rel- I'm learning about relativism, so I'm like okay, I need to learn how to deal with this, and got a hold of a few J.P. Moreland books, and got a hold of some Norman Geisler books. Well, uh, like I said, long story made not quite as long. Um, God did a major work with me. I had my one what I would call my Damascus Road experience where as I was just focusing in my quiet times, just I just took the month of April 
to focus in because I had rejected going to seminary even though I was just constantly working with the youth, working in the church. I was running, actually taught myself American Sign Language and was running um, a class to use sign language in the church and train interpreters. I mean, you know, I was doing all this. I'm like, oh, I don't need seminary. I don't need training. Look at how productive I am. And one night God struck me and said, you need training. And I said, okay. <laughs> like, you're sure, God. You think that's it. All right. And so I began, I was like, I didn't know what seminary was. I knew how to get a math a math degree. I was going to actually, I was a shoe-in at uh, Chapel Hill was where I was going to go. And I had to go the next day and tell all my professors that I had asked for recommendations that I didn't need them and then listen to them berate me and call me names for the promising career I was throwing away. Yeah, that was fun. Oh. And so Man. as I'm thinking, like, well, what seminary am I going to go to? What, how does this thing work? I was going to go to uh, uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological because at that time it was the, kind of the biggest of the seminaries. Uh, the Southern Baptist Seminaries, and I'm like, well, I'm Baptist. I go to Baptist Seminary. I don't know any better. So, uh, on the back of uh, Geiser's book, talks about this little seminary called SES. And what I knew is that with these encounters with people like Seppi and um, other Muslims and just the the free thinkers who were all around campus, MTSU prided itself in being the most secular school of Tennessee. I was like, I got to learn how to deal with this. And so I learned about this thing called apologetics, and I called up Southwestern, and I said, I want to emphasize, you know, I want, like, a major in apologetics. What, what are you guys offering? They said, we offer a class. And this is back in 2002. I said, okay. it's one class? That's it? <laughs> no, yep. I was like, all right. So I called every Southern Baptist seminary that exists, and the best I can wow. get was one class that was offered. So, of course, Norman Geisler at the seminary, SES, I called, I called them up, and uh, the secretary then, still now, Christina Woodside, said, you know, hey, if you schedule a meeting, Dr. Geisler will take you out for lunch. And I'm like, that's like going to lunch with Whoa. Billy Graham. I like, so I went to Charlotte for no other purpose than to just have lunch, really just kind of bad Mexican, with Dr. Norman Geisler. And I realized that that school offered everything that I wanted because it taught from a certain method. It didn't just tell you, here's what this book of the Bible says, because you can read it for yourself. It tells you how, it taught how to, you know, how do you know who wrote it? How do you know when it was written? What have people said against it? And how do you deal with that? And I was, I was just amazed. And I ended up calling my wife and I said, okay, what do you think about Charlotte instead of Fort Worth? And she said, the climate is way better. And the rest is history. (laughs) So that was how that was my integration into apologetics. That's how I found SES. You know, like I said, back in that day, there just wasn't anything else. I mean, you know, back in that day, you know, early 2000s. But I just knew yeah. if I was gonna if I was gonna handle what was being thrown at me, I had to get I had to get answers. I had to, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go to somewhere that would train me and teach me. And that was my whole uh as I as I went into apologetics and again self the baptism by fire because I didn't know who Kant was. I didn't know David Hume. I didn't know have any of this philosophy. And I'm in there for the first time and I'm just like, what's a, what's a what's a metaphysic? How does what <laughs> what is this thing? Um but I just knew I needed it and, and it was one of those things where as I was fumbling along in my own way, I believe in the, the providential hand of the Lord moved me in that direction because the training I received there and, and what I've learned in apologetics and how to how to just think like that in my Christian life has just been instrumental 
And I cannot recount the number of ways in which, you know, it's not just about having the right answer. It's being able to answer people. And and there's a a distinction there. So some people, they just want to have all the answers. But I wanted to be able to answer people and, and answer their burning questions because I had questions and I sought the Lord. Other people have other people have questions and they just run. And I was like, right. Who's gonna stand there and who's gonna give them answers and lead them to the truth? And that's been a, a major part of my ministry. Yeah, it's so. uh it's funny, you know, um Doctor Geisler has uh had such a just a profound imp- I mean he his stuff changed my life completely. Absolutely hundred percent. And uh it's just Loved talking with other other people uh, who's just have, you know just had their lives transformed, of course, by the power of Christ. But uh, you know, using um, SES and uh, just the 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 wonderful teachings of Geisler and just the whole classical apologetics. I mean, it's just uh, mm-hmm. can't say good enough about it for sure. So. <laughs> Very interesting. So, uh, how did you get involved in uh, being a pastor? Had you um, always desired to be a pastor, and kind of, um, yeah, go ahead and answer that, and then I'll I've got another question I was going to ask you. Well, like I said, I, I started my official start was '97 as helping out with the youth when my youth pastor left, and continued working in youth ministry. I I helped lead a youth ministry. My father-in-law was a was a pastor of a church in Murfreesboro, and I was just kind of doing different things and got involved at a large church and got involved in the college ministry, helping out with the youth there, like I said, doing uh, ministry to the deaf. And um, so I, I was always a part of that. And when I went to Charlotte to start seminary, I took a part-time youth pastor position um, at, a, at a local church and during this whole time, you know, like I said, all I knew, and this this is what's so odd because you you, you mentioned the Southern Baptist, because when I was uh, ordained, I was at this church in Charlotte. I was about halfway through my seminary degree, and and during the ordination council, it says, you know, what's your calling? And I said, I've I've been called to be trained, and I don't know what the next step is. God hadn't told me that. <laughs> I just know I'm supposed to be trained. And I'm supposed to help the church, and that wasn't good enough for some of them. They said, no, everyone's called to something. I was like. I'm called to follow Christ. I mean, why is this not good enough? And so to the short answer, have I always known I wanted to be a pastor? No. Um, because while I was in Charlotte, I was asking those questions. And, again, the Lord pressed upon my heart and my wife's heart, same day, same service. We both went to lunch with something to tell each other. And it was the, the issue was that we were going to have to leave that church because I was supposed to go full-time ministry. And I ended up from there uh, being an associate pastor in Fayetteville for seven years associate pastor of youth and students and have just always loved that. And I'm actually in just a week, I'm going to camp with the youth at our church. I mean, I'm still part of that still very much because the, you know, everybody talks about, Oh, the youth, you know, they're the future of the church. And I'm like, well, they are the church now. And in a lot of ways, yeah, they are the ones who, who have that hunger and desire many times that I think keeps the church young. So it's, it's very good to tap into that. Um, but two years ago, almost two years ago, uh, well, really three years ago, when my, my pastor in Fayetteville resigned and I became the interim pastor at my church, that's when I saw a larger vision for the church and my involvement with that rather than just being focused with the teenagers. 
because I'm very much in the right. cycling pasture as well. And I was like, I could do so much more if, not from the standpoint of, oh, I'm in charge, but if I'm helping lead and guide the church, then I can integrate these things that I see that are missing, and I can incorporate these. And so it was two years ago, almost two years ago, God brought me to this church out in, in Dublin, North Carolina, population like two or 300. So it's a, it is the second most rural county of North Carolina. And so wow. like if I look outside my office window, I mean, it's corn and cows. And so uh, this is not You're metropolitan. Wow. This is not, this is not <laughs> the big city because, and that, that was part of my heart that struck me as I, I said, 60% of the Southern Baptist churches are rural or 60% of the people, like not just not church numbers, but 60% of your Southern Baptist, you're going to be a rural area. And I'm like, all my friends, everyone, lots of people at the seminary, all my pastor friends, it was all about get to the big city, get to the big church, get to the big resources. I'm like, what about the farmers and factory workers? Don't they need Jesus too? <laughs> like, we're just oh, leaving wow. them behind. And so, yeah, I am, I am at a country church. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you, yes, you're, I've, you're I've been pastor there. for two years, and um, you know it is it is being from Memphis, Tennessee now. Remember, because I made it asphalt; these people made it dirt, and it, it makes for some interesting <laughs> cultural exchanges sometimes. <laughs> the way I feel, so um, but it's good, wow. and and this is where God has me in this phase of my ministry. Now, have they been? Um... Have they been receptive to? I mean, do you do you do apologetics at your church? I mean, how do you, how does that look? Do you do you work it into your sermons? Do you do you do like Sunday school classes? Uh, how do you incorporate apologetics into the, the life of the church? My first year was really sitting back and learning the people, and um, I I fell back on my youth pastor experience, and we had three seniors who were graduating high school and so I grabbed them and I said we're going to meet you know we're going to I'm going to get you ready for what's coming and uh, so that was kind of my start and when it comes to my sermons again and what and I just OSES this what I've learned is that you don't have to have apologetics as this separate entity almost like and again with Southern Baptist churches I mean this is what I'm a part of so so for listeners who aren't Southern Baptist, but I work at a non-denominational <laughs> Bible college, so they they always laugh at me when I talk about some some Southern Baptist distinctives. But Southern Baptist <laughs> churches are really good at compartmentalizing. We got the women's ministry mm. here, we've got the men's ministry here, over here upstairs in the corner, that's youth ministry. You know, and you got the the kids. We're yeah. going to do this. You know, everything is so compartmentalized. I think sometimes pastors get this idea that we need to add another compartment called apologetics, and so. I've learned that you don't compartmentalize that thing because there are some, I guess what we call purely apologetic or more advanced things that would require, uh, you know, more like when you get into the science stuff. I mean, that's that's not right. uh, the normal conversation stuff. But in terms of my sermons, you know, I'm I'm always bringing up those things and those items, and nine times out of ten, I'm doing apologetics and no one even knows it. You know, they don't know that's what it's called. Right. You know, all I'm doing is just defending this is why we know this, or here's what some people have said, and here's why this is wrong, or, have you know, you might have heard this, and I get people, yeah, yeah, nodding. Well, here's the mistake that's been made, you know, and 
I mean, that's apologetic. Right. It doesn't have to come, you know, on, on a mm-hmm. platter labeled, uh, but just learning how to think that way. Uh, I even teach hermeneutics at my church in the sense that on a, like a Wednesday night, I'll tell them, I was like, here's something you need to notice that writers typically did when they wrote. And, you know, I'm teaching them how to identify and how to interpret the text. And, you know, I, I don't call Wonderful. it hermeneutics. I'm like, I'm not going to teach you hermeneutics. I just, we're going to learn how to read this Bible that we have. Well, the same way, we're going to learn how to defend this faith. We're going to know why we believe this and why we're not something else. And uh, so I try to incorporate that in the, in the total life of the church, that wherever there is teaching or communication, these elements are there uh, because, as as mentioned, you know the three things you have to focus on with the church. You got to focus on, um, and, and really, as I as I shared just this last Wednesday night, you need the orthodoxy. You need your your correct teaching, and so you you got to have that content. But you also got to know why you believe those things and how to defend them. You got to have your orthopraxy, your right practice. Why do we do things this way and not another way? And what should we be doing and going and doing those things? But then you also have your, and, and for lack of a better term, I've labeled it the orthopathos, the, the passion for Christ. And uh, you, you even see this one of the best places is in Revelation 2, the condemnation against the church of Ephesians, or, or Ephesus. You know, Jesus says, look, you, you do great work. you got great doctrine. You're kicking out false apostles. You can recognize them. That's awesome. But you've lost your love. And if you don't get it back, I'm going to snuff your lamp out. You know, <laughs> it's like... Whoa. Right. Well, you know, and so all of those things combined, all of those elements, you know, you, you look at this and you're like, and I asked my church, if we had a false prophet walk in here, would we know how to recognize him? Would we know what to look for? You know, how many, how many people, and because some of my, my church members have listened to some people who I would label as false, and they've since fix that just through the preaching they're like you know I heard the opposite just the other day and I, and so I, I was able to deal with that like after church things like that and you know so so they're, they're learning how to identify they're learning that but like are we doing the right things do we know, really know Christ and do we love him all of those things working together and I tell them that when you're studying when you're learning how to defend the faith that's one of the ways you love God with your mind and that's a command so not Amen. something else. It's a part of the total package. So. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a, a quick break. We're here at the top of the hour. We have Thomas McCutty with us, and we're talking about apologetics in the church, why we need it, uh, what apologetics is. We'll come back. We'll look a little bit more of these uh, questions in depth and uh, just ask you to stay with us. If you have a question, if you'd like to call in and talk to uh, Thomas, you can call in at 760-542-3907. That's 760-542-3907. We will be back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, I got an email from the United States Marine not long ago. He said his daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. She won several scholarships from Christian organizations to go to college. She went off to college, and he said, four weeks into her first semester, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. Don't believe in God anymore? What happened? 
she ran into atheistic college professors on campus and she didn't know how to answer them, so she's an atheist now. Don't let that happen to you or your child. Join me and Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, along with Mike Adams, the UNC college professor, so you can learn why Christianity is true, how to answer what the atheists are saying, and how to stand strong for Christ in a culture that is bringing you an avalanche of ideas both on and off campus against the Christian faith. We're giving registration priority to high school and college students and their parents. If any space remains, then this event is going to be open to the entire congregation. Don't miss this unique opportunity to see why Christianity is true and how you can stand strong in this culture that's hostile to Christ. Here are the details. I just want to start off by saying that this was not a tempest in a teapot. Chiseled into the stone of the Reformation wall are the Latin words post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Luther was convinced that the gospel itself had fallen into darkness and obscurity in the late Middle Ages. The Reformation, from his perspective, was the recapturing and recovering of nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is so plain in Scripture that a child can understand it. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther by extension would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? All right, folks, and we are back. We are taking your calls here at 760-542-3907. At 760-542-3907, we have Pastor Thomas McCuddy on with us. We're looking at the role of apologetics in the church. So uh, I'm just curious. You know, we were talking a little bit there before the break. Uh, you were saying how you how some of the ways you integrate apologetics in uh, did your church has have they noticed a difference with maybe the way you think you have done things compared to um previous pastors i mean are they do they do they notice wow we seem to be you know getting um a pretty good healthy picture of the bible and and uh, defending the faith etc have they made any of those kind of uh, connections well, when I first came here, our uh, director of missions, who, you know, again, Southern Baptist Circle, he's a guy who kind of helps out all the churches in our county. And when I first came, he sat down with me, and within a month of me two being here, he said, you know, he recognized, he knew my degree, and my background was apologetics, and he says, you know, what would it take to have a conference here, you know, uh, an apologetics conference? And I said, you know, and in the course of talking, you know, I asked, you know, has there ever been one in this county? He's like, nothing like it, nothing at all like it. So I got to help put on the first apologetics conference in the county, and we've been just wow. finished the uh, second go-around 
And actually, when we talked by the by the end of that day, I mean, I had already booked like Richard Bland, uh, president, current president oh. of SES, and Frank Turek. Wow. And, you know, just you know, all those oh, connections wow. came into play, and so um, we we put on a conference here, and so uh, that started. You know, people recognized coming into it, you know, that this was going to be a, a focus, and that's where you can kind of at a conference, that's where you sort of do something different that you wouldn't do that intensively at a church. And so as far as uh, former pastors, I, I joked, and I've said this to my congregation during, during preaching, and I said, you know how I know that I'm not like all the other pastors you've had before and that you're used to? Because every person I meet who's ever heard me preach tells me that. <laughs> Every single one of them, they're like, "You're not what we're used to. You're you're different. You're 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 not like the other ones." And and I go, never having really heard the other ones. I've heard some of the some of the pastors around here, and um, I would describe it just as um, the very traditional, old school preaching style. And you know, and as I listen to several pastors around here, I can, I agree. I'm like, nope, I'm not like them. <laughs> that is. You know, I'm very much more expository. I'm very much more um, content and application driven in my sermons. And so, you know, there was initially right. kind of, uh, you know, and even as as some people put it, even after a year and a half, I was chatting with some, and they're like, "We're there's still some people on the fence. They're just not kind of sure, <laughs> you know." And and I <laughs> I always say, well, you know, that this is what God has called me to do and be. And, um, you know, so I, I have adapted somewhat, you know, even my wife would, would tell you my style changed to match a little bit more of what people were used to and, you know, those accommodations, but that the style in which one preaches has very little many times to do with the content. And so, you know, it's like what last Paul says, you become all things, all men. And so, you know, I, I had to adapt a little bit and, and I listened to other pastors and, like I said, figure figure that thing out. But um, it is um, it's a different culture in this area because and and this is and I'll tell you this this is the kind of area where you know people will move out but no one really moves in. So there's a very self-contained culture here and and I'm and I'm not kidding when I will tell you every we have 150 people on Sunday morning just about every single one of them is related blood related. Okay. Wow. I mean, it's just it's it's that kind of, I mean, it's that kind of county. It's just you grow up here, and people are you know, they trace their ancestries back to the 1700s when the first ones moved in and made the homestead, and you know you've wow. got well, in my church, I've got three families with the same last name. They're all technically related. I mean, they can trace it back, and they can tell you where the common ancestor is, but it's different sets. You know, like well, there's this one set over here, and there's this other set over here. <laughs> They're just gone so many generations that uh, though they sure. are related, they're not really, you know, related <laughs> that much anymore, but they are. <laughs> so um, everybody's kin out here, as, uh, as they tell me. So it, it's a it's a wow. unique environment where as I bring this in, I have very much changed a lot in the way that they think about things, the way they look at scripture, uh, and that's intentional because I... I, I remind them, you know, I remember as I talked about one time about liberal Christianity that has jettisoned the miracles and don't believe in the virgin birth and they reject the 
uh, inerrancy of scripture and they, you know, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just, you know, one of the ways. And I had people who, who almost called me a liar. They're like, there aren't any Christians that believe that. I said, well, wow. in one way you're right, <laughs> but there are many who claim to be Christian who believe that. Yeah. And like I said, it blew yeah. their minds. They just don't have that exposure. So um, that's been a part of what I've tried to do is is very gently – this is the world your kids are going out into. This is what we're going to have to face. And right. um, we, you know, when when the uh, attacks in Paris happened, I was, and through the training at SES, I was ready the next Sunday to speak very intelligently on what Islam is from the Quran, from the Hadith. And, you know, using Muslims' own words, this is what Islam is. This is what ISIS is, This, you know. And because that's what I found in the county is that very few really knew what was going on. You know, they just kind of like, oh, you know, Allah is a demon, which <laughs> that's not helping us understand what we're up against. And that's that's why I'm, I'm trying to change, you know, how the church thinks about these things because, uh, you know, the stories, we got one kid who went off to state and the things that he faced, he actually came back for a youth Sunday and preached youth Sunday and talked about that, talked about the darkness that he felt he was just kind of thrown into and just how difficult wow. it is for him. So oh. they're, they're starting to realize there's a big world beyond the county lines, and it's a scary place. And do you, do you guys have you know, a lot of youth? Is, you guys have a lot of you guys. You guys have a lot of youth. Uh, and relatively speaking, we we probably have one of the biggest youth groups in the county. Um, we'll wow. have forty forty kids here on a, a Wednesday night sometimes. And um, so yeah, we got we got a lot of teenagers. And you know, as I interact with them, as I as I talk with them. Uh, and I actually am. A, here's one of the ways I, I incorporate. I did one time on a on a Wednesday night. I brought even had the teenagers come into the adult meeting, and I gave them all paper and I said, "Give me your questions, whatever questions you have." And the things I got back, and I could tell which ones the teenagers were, and, and the, the things I got back just broke my heart in terms of why has no one ever dealt with this before? Why why, you know, I understand some questions, but there's some things. Um, you know, that just seemed basic that I was like, you know, or when when someone gets asked, uh, I remember when um, some youth leaders got asked, you know, well, who made God? And, you know, the answer is sometimes, well, I never thought about that. Okay, well, <laughs> you got a kid who's asking, you know, and if the church doesn't give a good answer, there's a world out there, and then that's not that they have a better answer, but they have a better sounding answer. And that's what draws the kids yeah. away. And it's like they're ready. They, you know, I I ask my question. Boom! I got an answer, and they don't know whether it's right or wrong, but they're impressed. Right. And that's what I found with teenagers over the years. So many times I've watched this happen over and over and over, and and I've even seen those stories where uh, when I was in Tennessee in college, there was a kid who was the uh, he played with the praise band, went off to a camp with the school for a month, came back a complete atheist. And I'm just like, wow. how does this happen? You know what? He went, yeah. to, he went to a camp for science enrichment. <laughs> he comes back. Wow. Drops everything. Comes an atheist. So, oh, um, and, and that's, 
it doesn't happen as much out here, out in, I guess, the whole county is considered the sticks. (laughs) They don't see it quite as much because there's such a – such a thick Christian culture that's still here in this county. Uh, but I tried to tell him, I was like, this is, this is a pebble in a, in a much larger rock quarry of ideas and places of the world. And the borders will not hold for long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a post this the other day on our Facebook page lecture by um, Dr. Ed Faser. I know you know who, who he is. Uh, mm-hmm. Lecture gave, I think, 2014, What We Owe the New Atheists. In this, uh, in this talk, uh, he says this, uh, in this quote, he says, quote, if you're going to compete in a boxing match, you better be prepared to box, and if you're not, your opponent will have the victory, uh, whatever his own deficiencies, as a boxer. So the new atheists are doing the church the service that Mr. T did Rocky. Uh, if, again, you'll pardon my somewhat fanciful analogy, by forcing us to get serious, to get back into fighting shape, to recover our intellectual muscle and argumentative rigor. I love that mm-hmm. quote. And I think one of, the, one of the issues is when you have these older um, churches, and I, I, you know, I go to Park Baptist um, Church, I think it's 108 years old. One of the oldest churches around, and uh, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. You have older people that have been there for a long time. I mean, grown up there years and years, um, and now you have a lot of younger people uh, starting to come in. We got a, a newer pastor a couple of years back, and um, what you see, though, I think, is when you have young adults, you know, when you have a youth group and you have a college uh, group. You're forced to deal with these things uh, unless you're willing to just not care and be apathetic and send your kids off, and you know they're going to get slaughtered in the universities. So in a mm-hmm. sense, um, you know, I think like Fieser says, it, these the new atheists and kind of these attacks almost do the church a favor in that they force us to think. You know, they they – they make us think. And I, I do. Um, I'm a missionary with Ratio Christie, and uh, me and my buddy Chris Van Allsburg talk sometimes. And I remember, you know, him saying that uh, it would almost be good if the campus had, where he was at, if they had a secular student alliance. Just in that, it would make the Christians have to think about some of these things and have to wrestle with some of these rather than just being apathetic. Uh, what are What are your thoughts on that? kind of that whole well I, I think that I think Chris is dead on and and we have a common friend in, in Chris and oh, um, yeah. I, I believe that you know out here as I said that you don't you don't see that as much um, you don't you don't have that I mean we've got a community college down the street from us and they don't have any kind of organization like that and I actually help I do the devotions out at the uh, the community college during the fall and spring uh, go out there and and this is the kind of stuff that I do is I, is I challenge them many times I'll, I'll take a passage or I'll take a concept and I even talked one time we had um, 30 nursing students so it was 29 women one guy that, that were in there and so my talk that day was uh, was I just used um, and what I'll do is, is I'll, I'll try to find the things that they've seen before because 
the things that, that are bad and they don't know it. Like, it's one thing when you have, like, a, a group of atheist students that, you know, it's like, oh, hey, that's atheism. That is very much against Christianity. You know, you can spot that. You know, it's almost like, hey, there's there's danger on our door. Like Chris said, we got we got to do something. But there's a lot that they don't even recognize. So I told them, I was like, have you ever heard, you know, the little bumper sticker phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, that's false. I was like, because if that's the case, <laughs> yeah. God is beautiful. And if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then that's not actually something that's really a part of God. And they were like, what? And so I unpacked that. And, you know, not just from an apologetic, like, let's not just get philosophical. How does this apply? And I think that's where a lot of apologists miss it when it comes to incorporating it into the church. You bring this big concept, and it's not a, it's not an, a wrong thing for the congregation or for the, for the people who are listening to ask, what do I do with this thing? And so my idea, okay, well, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It is something that is real. We are created in the image of God, and he gives us beauty because he is beauty. That's a part of our human nature. So long story short, I told him, you as nursing people, when you see people on their worst day, you look at them in their messed up state and you remember that they are beautiful because they are created in the image of a beautiful God. And it just changed their whole outlook. You know, and I'm like, wow. that's what the church should be doing. <laughs> that's that's the kind of stuff we should be teaching and incorporating is, you know, we, we need the big ideas. We need to know, you know, how uh, the things that are out there and how to deal with them, but also where the rubber meets the road in terms of where does this affect me, how does this affect my attitude, how does this affect my behavior, and how do I teach others the same. And like I said, I think this is the ball that's dropped in in getting apologetics into the church and why the church can be very standoffish is because, okay, we got this apologetics thing over here, but what's it doing? <laughs> You know, it's just like, ah, we have right. this, this strange monster that's in the corner. Um, but, hey, we've got apologetics. It's almost like, you know, almost like if you have a women's ministry and the women meet, but they don't ever do anything, how is it ministry? <laughs> you know, that's exactly. – I, I think apologetics works the same way, that if you've got the apologetics meeting and, and they're doing their apologetic thing, but they're never ever getting beyond that group, it's not ministry at that point. It's not part of the church. It might meet in a church, but it's not part of the church. I think that kind of went a little bit afield from what you were asking, but no, that's yeah. I think I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. Um, when you're when you're de- when you're kind of hitting on some of these issues, um, do you find that uh, the older people are as interested uh, as well? When you're, I assume, like you said, you're talking about Islam and stuff. How does the how does the congregation take it? Is there more? Uh, interest among the younger folk than the older folk, or are you find that they're both pretty uh, interested in these things? I think it can be a mixed bag. I have a, uh, a lady in my congregation, uh, an older lady, and and I'll just generalize: older would be anything seventy above, so that way I don't <laughs> call anything out. But she's she's an older lady, and um, she is so excited that she she in her words she says for the first time. I'm really learning. And so I you know she she she's kind of lit up about the you know what I, what I'm bringing. There's others who are asking the you know what does this matter to me? Um and I've shared this with my my congregation. I've said this openly before that one of the things that happened when I first came here was I was rebuked for not preaching the gospel. When I first came to the church, my whole series was on 
what a disciple was, what does discipleship look good and look like in the church and the mission of the church. And I was told, the lost don't care about this discipleship. You need to preach the gospel. And right there, I was like, okay, we don't understand the gospel. (laughs) Because (laughs) the gospel is much more than just when you got saved. Like the gospel didn't just stop yeah. working. It, 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 you know, in order to become like Christ, that, that's a pretty lengthy process, and that is gospel power being lived out in the life. You know, the, the initial yeah. gospel power is to salvation, but then through the Holy Spirit, you become more like Christ. You become that disciple. And uh, I was asked this question by a, by a church member one time because he said, "Well, what do you think is more important, evangelism or discipleship?" And I said, discipleship, because if you do discipleship, you will make evangelists. But if you just do evangelism, you will not make disciples. And I said, so by doing mm. discipleship, you get both. I was like, if you disciple correctly, if you've got disciples who aren't evangelizing, you did something wrong. But you can evangelize, wow. and they all get saved, but you've not given them anything. You've not equipped them. You know Ephesians 4, isn't that the, the apostles, the teachers, the pastors – they're there for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry that everyone may be presented perfect, mature in the faith. So I think that that's been part of the mentality that I've tried to break that's been here is seeing the larger picture of what the gospel is and how it affects yeah. us, even if we've been believers since we were little babies, which I don't fall in that category. And I, and I tell them that all the time. I know what it's like to convert. I know what it's, I know what I've been saved from. Uh, my wife is one who's grown up in the church, you know, so there wasn't even, wasn't really a time where she wasn't part of the church and Christian, you know, and for me, I just was kind of like a, you know, growing up on my own, I, I wasn't completely, you know, it wasn't like God called me out of drugs or things like some people have with their testimonies, but um, I I have some older brother. I have an older brother who I look at, and many times I'm like, "That's what I was saved from, right there." And I believe that that was how Whoa. God, you know, used that to help me in realizing, you know, very early on, hmm, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know I'm not supposed to do that, so I go the other way. And so with the church, I think, you know, just like you said earlier, we don't have that counterexample, at least out here where I am, we don't have that counterexample of the secular student alliance or these things. And we got some articles that go around Facebook, which I like to share those and let people know here is what's going on in the world. This is here's what's going on in your back porch. You know, this is this is what's really happening to kind of create that wow. sense of you know what? There there is a whole equipping we don't have and that we need. And yeah. and like I said, for for the most part, those who who are, are engaged are really engaged. Uh, we do have one gentleman in our church who did not grow up in church, and he was saved. As an unbeliever, he was reading Ravi Zacharias. He was reading Frank Turek, and he was only saved like five years ago. And Wow. Uh, so he was reading all these things and comes to Christ that way. So, I mean, he is gung-ho. He just loved it. When uh, Actually, this last conference, we brought out Norman Geisler and David Geisler and um, lots of the crew from, from SES and different people, and you know, he just he just ate it up, and there's other members of the church who came and just were enthralled and asking questions and and learning and and getting equipped, uh, and then there's there's others who could care less. And to use right. a very bad Baptist analogy, as I once learned, you dance with who's ready to dance. If you have one, 
you dance. If you have a hundred, you dance. But you dance with who's ready to dance. And that's a that's something I've always shared with pastors, youth pastors, anyone in ministry, and they're like, Oh, you know, but I have all these people who, who aren't interested and I was like, Well, who do you have? Who can you begin pouring into? Who's ready? You know, even if it's just right. like, even if it's just one, you know, why are you gonna let that one slip? You know, Jesus chose twelve to really pour into. I said out of all the thousands who were coming after him, you know, he he took those that were you know, and, and when you look at their lives many times, were they really ready? I mean, as much as they just kind of botched it constantly. I always bring yeah, that always right. gives me great comfort. So <laughs> that that's just uh you know, for anyone who's who's tried to bring apologetics in, you gotta there's a certain finesse. Because if you go too hard, too heavy, people just it's that knee jerk reaction, they'll reject it. Just like anything that's new or strange to them because they don't understand. And I said, so that's why I said my whole first year was learning, and now we're slowly moving, incorporating, and, you know, and after a while, people do start, they start asking the questions. And I've got, like I said, uh, senior saints who are coming to me all the time. What is, the, what is this passage in the Bible? What is this? You know, and they'll call me up. Sometimes I get called two in the morning from college students. You know, what is this? <laughs> you know, and wow, and, and I love it. Like this, this, I was like, don't ever be afraid to contact me. And that's the other thing I tell pastors. I was like, if somebody has a burning need enough to call you at two in the morning, don't get irritated. Just deal with it. And <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, that's a blessing. I mean, it, it shows that they're they're thinking about these things, right? Absolutely. Very good. Let's uh, maybe let's talk a, a few minutes about uh, some of the objections to apologetics, and um, I see this a lot. Uh, in fact, some of the some of the biggest objections we get are from fellow believers on apologetics. So maybe we could touch touch on a couple of those. Um, so you know, one of the objections is going to come that um, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom. Um, you just just preach the gospel. Why are you wasting your time uh, trying to to read? Now, unfortunately, I'm a I am a Reformed Baptist. I'm a good, uh, mm-hmm. good Calvinist, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people on my side have bought into this garbage, and uh, mm-hmm. they'll say things like the natural man can't reason, and the natural man. Uh, you know, doesn't know how to use logic, etc., and that drives me crazy. So, uh, when this objection comes, just preach the gospel. Uh, don't try and use reason or apologetics or philosophy. What do you say, my friend? Well, number one, I'm one of those who, through reason and asking those questions and searching came to Christ. So I would say that uh, in my, my good mathematics background says you only need one to have a counterexample. So um, I, exhibit <laughs> A would be myself. Uh, second go. thing is when people tell me, you know, you can't argue people in the kingdom. And I said, um, are you trying to change how I think? Are you, are you actually giving me an argument as to why we should not argue people with people? And I, and, <laughs> I, I have this at the Bible college I teach at. I'm over the apologetics program, and so I get people from all different denominations. Like I said, and one I remember a conversation with one person. He said, "You know, well, you know, just 
the whole issue of just arguments. And I said, argument is not a bad thing. Whenever you're talking to somebody and you disagree, you're having an argument. Now, I think what you're talking about is a fight, which is different. <laughs> that, you yeah. know, that the idea of you're going to tell me that just through reasonable conversation when you're taking two different sides of an issue, that that's not evangelism. That's not presenting the gospel. And the the example I give, and I feel this from uh, David Geisler, uh, he compares it to, in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. And he says, well, we know what happens when you have good soil. The, the gospel takes root and produces fruit. He's like, but these other three soils, is there a way in the case of the hard soil? Well, farmers know that if you have hard soil, you can you know you can plow that thing. You know, is there some way that we can cultivate good soil? You know, what is right. it that's causing the hardness? What is it that's in the way? Because, uh, and I just point this out, like from the Book of John. Uh, when people, Jesus was doing his miracles towards the end of his ministry, people are like, could this be the Messiah? And someone else, someone pipes up and says, well, surely not. Jesus is from Galilee. Messiah's not coming from Galilee. Well, the guy had bad information. And I'm like, is this is this what's standing in people's way sometimes? The gospel is bad information? You know, that, that are they rejecting a God that Christianity itself does not worship? And I said, right. that's part of the role of apologetics. I was like, in order... In order for somebody to accept the gospel, they first have to hear the gospel, and they first have to understand it. So when people are always saying, you know, the, the purpose of the church is to make Jesus known, I always add, and understood. Because if people know who Jesus is, but they don't understand what he said, they don't understand what he's offering, and they don't understand scripture at all, and it's just one big convoluted mess to them, I don't blame them for not giving their lives and taking on a, a system that says you've got to die to yourself when they don't understand what they're signing up for. Um, right. So for me, with with the apologetics, you know, it's not that I'm, you know, and people, uh, the, the brother to that argument, you know, you can't argue people in the kingdom, is that, uh, you know, no one gets saved by winning, you know, no one gets saved through an argument. Or no, no, what it is is um, it's about winning people, not arguments. That's the one. It's about winning people, not arguments. And I'm like, well, you don't win people to Christ by, losing arguments either and and being proved wrong and by having your ideas presented as false. I mean, who do you ever talk to that says, ah, I have just proven Christianity is completely false. Let me sign up for it and give my life to it. No one does. No one does that. So so there's this element where when it comes to evangelism, you know, there's certain components. First, you have to speak their language. As I've shared with uh, one, one gentleman in my church, you know, I was like, well, preach the gospel. What if I'm, you know, what if I'm talking to somebody who only speaks German and I preach the gospel in English? Is that effective? I mean, you gotta tell, you're gonna tell me that I've got to learn languages so I can share the gospel? You know what missionaries do? Right. Okay. So, so they're using language skills to share the gospel. So when we come to apologetics, we're using logic and reason and thinking skills to share the gospel. Um, and and so apologetics becomes that tool of pre-evangelism. Again, this is very David Geisler term in his book, uh, Conversational Evangelism, which I would say is one of yeah. the best Great pieces book. of material out there. Um, but in it, he talks about, you know, that as uh, with apologetics, we've got to clear away the intellectual baggage. We've got to deal with unanswered questions because you know otherwise 
why why would they accept, and what are they accepting if they don't understand it to begin with? So apologetics right. is a tool that comes in there and and can help with that. And and so I don't say that apologetics is, is necessarily the uh, the panacea that just completely solves all of our woes because sometimes people's objections are purely emotional and that there's a lot of hurt or there's a lot of um, reservations. Um, I've done ministry over in China and, you know, very much uh, with the family unit and, and the things that uh, the in some cultures the honor that's at stake. Um that's not those aren't rational reasons they're emotional and uh yeah you know apologetics ha- doesn't have much of a foot in the door with that you know that's much more personal that's much more where you've got to have your interpersonal skills which and then again i tell people you know you, you mean i've got to i took a class my minor was in speech and theater because when god called me to the ministry i was finishing my math degree but i didn't have my minor so i'm this weird math major with a speech and theater minor okay so in my minor <laughs> in in communication this is why i took those classes was because i said if i'm going to work with the church i need to know how to speak to people i need to, and i took a whole class on interpersonal communication to help me learn how to relate to people uh, and I even took a, an acting class because I'm like, surely that would help me as a pastor. So, you know, um, all of those things considered, I did that because I got to learn how to be effective in presenting the gospel. Apologetics is one of those tools to help you be effective. And, I was, and my last thing I, I would share on that and point out to people is starting around, uh, starting the last last bit of Acts before uh, Paul gets thrown in jail. What you see is a constant, Paul went and um, he persuaded the Jews. He debated them. Apollos becomes a believer and debates the Jews powerfully in public, encouraging the believers. That uh, you, you see just this language of persuasion, debate, discussion, reasoning with them that Jesus is the Messiah used in the Old Testament. And I said, so So that is a, a major component of how we do evangelism really in the 21st century. In the the, the last uh, or the middle of the, of the 20th century, in a, in a culture where the Christian worldview reigned supreme, you didn't really need the apologetics. You were just going more for the actual commitment. You know, most everybody was kind of like right. I was, where, you know, everybody believed, but people weren't committed. And those are the ones you go and you evangelize and, and get them to commit their life. You, you even hear that language still today. That's what the big emphasis, got to commit your life because the assumption is they already believe it. But now we live in a world where they don't even understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what the gospel is, sin, cross, what is all this, this, this verbiage, this theological talk about. So you've got to make Jesus known and understood before you can get that commitment. And apologetics is, is now now a much more major necessity than it was in the 50s and 60s, which, like you said, my church, by the way, is 135 years old. Um, wow. That, that for these who have grown up in that culture, this is a new way of doing things. And it's because the, the culture is changing so radically fast that we've now returned to the early days of the church where we have to convince people that Christianity is legit. So that's yeah. that's how I would answer that particular issue. Very good. Uh folks, we're gonna take a, another short break. Uh seven six zero five four two 
3907-760-542-3907. We have a little over uh, 20 minutes uh, left in the show. We'll come back. We'll look at some more objections. We'd love to hear from you if you have questions, uh, comments, etc. Give us a call, 760-542-3907. Excellent. As you're going through it, I, uh, had, I thought a question that atheists might ask, and it's kind of similar to the very first question that was asked, just pushing it a bit further. If a materialist asked you, why should I believe what you are calling general revelation is true rather than, than my materialism based on science, how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's all, it's all about what is the purpose of a worldview or a philosophy. Is the purpose of a philosophy to create castles in the air, nice little systems that hang up in the abstract realm, or is it to explain the real world? If it's to explain the real world, then it has to fit the real world. You know, that's why we go to general revelation, which is you know, their, their own, notice I kept stressing, their own experience doesn't fit their worldview. It's not like I'm telling them, I disagree with you. We're pointing out that you yourself say that when you take your, like Steven Pinker, you take your lab coat off and you go home and you switch to a completely different paradigm. So it has to do with what is the purpose of a worldview. Most people want a worldview not, not for some abstract little logically coherent system. Yeah, like I kept saying, uh, the reductionist view is very logically consistent. If you start with natural causes alone, we will end up as being complex machines. That's logically consistent, but it's hanging up here in the abstract realm doesn't fit the real world of even those who profess it. So I would press them to, to the question of why are you even, why are we discussing philosophy? We want a philosophy that explains how you and I actually have to live in this world. God's Word can sustain a lifetime of study, and the New Reformation Study Bible is carefully crafted to enrich your study of Scripture. When you register your new study Bible online, you'll instantly gain access to hundreds of dollars of discipleship resources from Ligonier Ministries. You'll own several teaching series, including Dust to Glory, Dr. R.C. Sproul's 57-message survey of the entire Bible. You'll receive six months of devotional content with a subscription to Table Talk magazine. You'll have convenient access to select e-books on your digital devices. And you'll join others from around the world on Ligonier Connect. Your new Reformation Study Bible is a great foundation for growth. Register it today and unlock a lifetime of study. All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters, and we have our good friend Thomas McCuddy on the show, and we are looking at the role of apologetics in the church. This month we've been kind of focusing a little bit on uh, ecclesiology in the church. Uh, about two weeks ago we had uh, Pastor uh, Jonathan Lehman, also the director of the Nine Marks, uh, kind of editorial and the journal section, written a lot of good books on uh, the church, church discipline, wrote uh, the book uh, The Surprising Fence of God's Love. So if you've not listened to those shows, you can go back on our archive page. If you go to Theology Matters with the Clues on Facebook, 
Uh, you can find all of the shows that we've done. And we've done a lot of shows over the last uh, three or four years, including several debates, uh, a lot of debates with Roman Catholics, uh, Mormons, atheists, uh, etc. So be sure to go back in the archives. You can find a lot of those uh, debates. We will have our annual Reformation Month coming up uh fairly soon, in a, in a few months here in October, and uh, really trying to put together uh, some really good, uh, hopefully some good debates uh, with some with some um, good Roman Catholic thinkers and uh, some good Protestant thinkers as well and, and address some of these, uh, again, important issues. Uh, Pastor Thomas, glad to have you back with us. Really appreciate you being with us and giving us your time. We've been looking over a little bit at some of these objections that sometimes come from Christians that uh, promote apologetics in the church. We looked at uh, the one that comes about, uh, you know, just preach the gospel, don't get into arguments or reasons, etc., and kind of how that's problematic, and that they're giving reasons against uh, using reason. But maybe another one that comes and uh, seems to be used a lot, it's, it's uh, more of an emotional tactic, is that um, apologetics is unloving. Uh, it's divisive. It's, um, we shouldn't we just love like Jesus told us to love? Why are we, why are we arguing? Why are we just nitpicking and, uh, you know, going after every little doctrine? What, what would you say to that? How would you respond to that? Well, <clears throat> apologetics is neither loving nor unloving. It's apologists who can be unloving at times, much like evangelists who can be unloving and pastors who can be unloving. So, so this is a just a misrepresentation. Um, and I think that the the big objection where it really stems from is is the way sometimes apologetics is presented. <clears throat> but I would maintain that you know anything that Christ Taught anything that's in scripture can be presented in a right way and a wrong way. Uh, but the question mm-hmm. of you know, as you as you look at a discipline like apologetics, whose that big purpose is to give reasons for what you believe, for somebody to say that that's not a good idea, well, again, you're 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 going to try to reason against it, so it, it defeats itself. Um, but at the same time, people who say, well, that's just nitpicking, well. Sometimes people do nitpicks, but you have right, to you right. can't you can't generalize it like that. Like sometimes there's and I've done this even with theology, even with churches, that you have to choose the hills you're going to die on. And that's yeah. what we, especially in a church, that's what I look at trying to do. What are the big things? Where where will we plant our feet and say no more? Where where are the lines that we draw? And then there's other places yeah. where you know I'm just going to agree to disagree and not get into it. Uh, it's not that I don't care or have yeah. an opinion, but I think that what happens is sometimes you get very opinionated people who are yeah. making that mountain out of the molehill, molehills, and and that's that's where that comes from. When I first came here, I had a um, to this church I'm at now. I had a gentleman who told me that he really didn't want to do anything with apologetics because all the all the people who do apologetics that he knows of are jerks. And I said, well, we have something in common because most of the apologists I know are jerks too. <laughs> and that was because um, I, I remember I was like, I, I was that same way. I remember when I first learned apologetics and I got this new toy and I had no idea what to do with it. You know, it's like when you, you know, you get the hammer and it's like, ah, oh, everything becomes a nail. 
and you end up starting to do damage. Um, and this is this is where, on on that same note, uh, the the church sometimes views and says, well, you know, too much knowledge is a bad thing, you know. And I even have that from a summer camp that I did many years ago. Uh, I was looking through my notes, and this guy had made this point, and I highlighted it, put arrows to it, you know, too much knowledge is a bad thing. And to quote oh, yeah. uh, Dr. Bridges at SES, you know, he, the way he did it, he said, this is, this is just false. God is omniscient. So the more we know, the more we're becoming like God, the more we're becoming <laughs> like he is. I say, how is ignorance well, better? And he's like, what you're talking about is the character you're talking about a, a loss of character or a lack of character. And I said, you know, if, if you have, you know, if you're the smartest person in the world and you've got a great character, well, you're in a great position. And if you're the smartest person in the world and you have a bad character, well, that's that's the thing that, you know, horror movies are made out of. And, right. um, you know, but on the flip side, you know, you want to have a really good character, but you're going to be ignorant of, scripture and theology and what Jesus really meant and how these things apply, in what way is that a virtue? And um, so I believe that as as those who study apologetics seek and they grow and they gain this new knowledge, they must also have time to to master it and, and grow that character as well. And um, so when people when people offer a complaint and say, you know, well, you know, most of the apologists I know, you know, it's like, you know, many times I'll, I'll give them that point. I was like, okay, you know, the same thing happens when the atheists are saying, you know what, I went to a church and everybody was mean to me. Are we supposed to, like, quit having church and quit being the church because we've got some bad churches out there that really give church a bad name? Or do we try right. to correct the churches? Do we try to... to um, reform them as it would be to be more of what they were intended to be. And I, th- I think that's what happens with apologetics. So if somebody's ever been like nitpicked or called a name, you know, like um, when when apologists tend to go heretic hunting, and I've been a part of those with my own theological torch and pickaxe before. I, I remember what that was like <laughs> because I was I was young and inexperienced. That's what happens when, when you encounter those things. Um, yeah. But but just because somebody misused apologetics doesn't say anything about the inherent value of apologetics itself because when you look at those who do use it correctly and use it with integrity with a a character that has obviously been molded by Christ, um, you see people who are imitators of Paul and Peter and the apostles who went out and gave that defense. Um, So that's... That's just how I, that that argument falls yeah. the same thing as uh, Christians are mean, so I don't want to be a Christian. Apologetics is divisive, <laughs> or apologetics, you know, is, is unloving, so I don't want to do apologetics. It's it's the same thing. They've they've not experienced it as it was intended. Yeah, I think part of it too is having a proper understanding of the essentials versus non-essentials, and then the particular crowd, because sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I do. Um, an apologetics class at uh, Kershaw Prison every Monday, and uh, I'm with uh, with an awful lot of non-Christians, and uh, you know you get people, or, or, or sometimes those in the emergent uh, church, will say if you're even uh, saying you know the doctrine of the Trinity is a hill to die on, they'll say that's you're just splitting hairs, you know you're just nitpicking. 
So a lot of mm-hmm. times I think it's just if we if we do have a good understanding of the essentials from the non-essentials, things like the doctrine of the Trinity, that's something you got to die for. That's that's something you got to go to the mat on, uh, as to where mm-hmm. you know something like mode of baptism or or eschatology or age of the earth or you know Calvinism. Um, right. A lot of people kill. A lot of people killing each other over that one. Uh, you know, those mm-hmm. are. I think. I just. I think as apologists, I don't know. I just. I, I wish we would just stick to more of the uh, mere Christianity style defense rather than getting in all these other. You know, the age of the earth and those things are good discussions to have. Uh, but man, well, you and, see and some think... nastiness coming out in people with with stuff like that. And I think that's what goes wrong in the church from a pastor's perspective, because I've sat under a pastor right. before when he would he would go almost on this rabbit trail with this very particular thing. And, again, that's what turns people off. And I was like, what is that thing? And and it's very unnatural. It's this awkward moment where all of a sudden he just, you know, where he, if he goes, starts going into the science of evolution. I served under a pastor who, uh, I think that was his degree, was like physics or something like that. He was a physics teacher before he became a pastor. And he went into it, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm tracking, but I'm I'm knowing that the people in the congregation, they don't have a background. They, they were like, what is this? You know, this just became a science lesson. You know, it's not even theology. Yeah. It's, it's some other monster. And so that's where we just have to be careful in, you know, and I recognize that, and again, just, Having used it for so long, I get that feel of, oh, this would be really cool, but now's not the time to bring that up. Yeah, you know, that's that's a discernment, that's a skill that pastors have to hone, or otherwise, you know, or you do the same thing even when you just do you just doing your exegesis that there's something really cool in the text, and you just spent ten minutes on it, and people are looking at you like, are you done yet? <laughs> so <laughs> you got to make sure that it's it's yeah. edifying to the ones who are listening to you as well as yourself. Yeah, I, I I love that. That's a great point. Uh, I I also would say too, uh, with the congregation, kind of from the pastor's perspective, of sometimes uh, why pastors hesitate to do apologetics. Uh, we as congregation members sometimes need to be wise. I remember uh, was just started going to a well, I guess I'd been there a couple of years at this particular church, and uh, like you, Thomas, one time I was a young believer and uh i was and like i i still i am still a young earth creationist okay but i am not mm-hmm. uh like i was i was a very ken hammy you know very divisive just that's just how you're i'm sorry it's just kind of how you're sometimes trained if that's all you read at that particular position mm-hmm. Uh, and there was another guy who was uh, reasons to believe. And, I mean, he was – so we were basically uh, the opposite of each other but die hard in, in our position. And I remember mm-hmm. the pastor wanted to do a um, – bring in a, a, an apologetics class, do a science, uh, you know, uh, eight-week series in the summers on uh, on apologetics. And, you know, I just – I wish I could go back in time – and redo that because I know we made that so miserable for that poor pastor. I think the class ended up getting pulled and, you know, there was so much tension and anger and, you know, I look back and I just wish I, I, you know, hadn't done, hadn't, uh, you know, both of us would have 
if we both of us would have given a little bit, you know, and you know, now Rashio Christie, I have no problem teaching people Big Bang cosmology and saying, look, you know, if you're talking to the atheist, go this route just for the sake of the argument, etc. Uh, so sometimes, you know, um, congregations can uh, can ruin apologetics. So to, as to where the pastor, they're scared to bring in uh, apologetics because there's so much infighting with apologists. Uh, what, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? I think that when it, when it comes to and I, and I can't speak specifically because I've not encountered so much that from pastors. I've my personal experience has been more among pastors as either they don't have any exposure to it or they're gung ho with it. Okay, so okay. as far as some guys who have looked at it and rejected it, I've not had a lot with that. But to kind of uh, hypothesize on it a little bit, um, you know, I, I recognize it from a pastor's perspective. You know, there there is that element, and I, and I try to warn people who who go into the ministry and who who are going to be pastors. You know, everything changes when you're a pastor, and there there is that element. I know it's not supposed to be, but from the standpoint of a business, there is that element. And and to to use these analogies, and and please anyone listening, don't take them the wrong way. There is that element where, if you and you know that if the customers aren't happy, they're going to take their business elsewhere. Okay, right, so as a pastor, right. there is that element where you know, if this is going to cause problems, I don't want to. I don't want to endorse this or be, have part of this because, you know, right. I have enough trouble getting enough people confused to begin with. You know, yeah. Yep. And so, if if they perceive it that way, or they've had some sort of run in, uh, and again, it's just they they've had that one experience, kind of like I've, I've always shared that if you go to Olive Garden and you get food poisoning, and then all of a sudden now you're you're halfway across the United States and, you know, somebody wants to stop at Olive Garden, you're like, oh, no, 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 I would get food poisoning <laughs> if I eat at Olive Garden. It's the same kind of reasoning. But you understand, there there is that legitimate emotional connection where, hey, I remember how I almost died by, by eating this stuff. And I'm, not that it is or has an Olive Garden, not downplaying them. I love Olive Garden. But you you see the, the connection there. So some pastors, they're going to say, you know what, I had a bad experience with this, so we're going to ditch it. But they, they do that with just about anything because as a pastor – well, we tried this, yeah. that didn't work, so let's go somewhere else. Let's do something. Oh, we're we're not going to try that. We've, we've been there. And the church can get that way, too. But if the church has been burned some way like that, um, that I've even had that uh, where at some churches they will not have, like, discipleship classes per se because something went horribly wrong. Um, like, well, we need to do yeah. discipleship, so we need to, to figure this thing out. And the same thing works with apologetics. So like, okay, it wasn't done the right way. Let's let's do it right this time. And yeah, you know, and that's that's just how churches are. Something really bad happens. You know, they're they're going to have that response. And from a pastoral perspective, there's that element where, again, out of all the options, all the myriad of of possibilities, you know, you're going to try to go for what's going to get you. I hate to put it this way, but really best results. What's going to be the most effective to equip the most people and bring the best result and best fruit from the church? And having done this thing with apologetics, it was bad. I remember, you know, and you might have the picture in your mind of the family who left because of it. You know, that stuff lingers with pastors. So, yeah. so you realize, you know, it might just be one face in your mind that you say, no, I won't have anything to do with apologetics. But 
I, I, I think that's just too hasty of a generalization, if I may use logic in the discussion with that. So. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's that is that is good. That's uh, that's a good point. Uh, any any loose ends? Take a minute or so. Give us a give us a conclusion. Uh, kind of uh, wrapping us up for the evening. I believe in terms of apologetics and the ministry of the church is much like you would say missions and the ministry of the church, preaching and the ministry of the church. Um, reaching youth, evangelism, all those components, I've often drawn it out such that, um, and I've done this with churches where, you know, you do the bubble, uh, the mind map, where you've got the church in the middle, and what are all the things that stem out of that? What are all the parts? And so I stem out, here's all of our ministries, okay? Well, how are these ministries, you know, also interconnected, realizing that we want to do missions or we've got any really active youth that they can join and do missions. The Baptist men, and you know, most churches are going to have Baptist men or brotherhood or something like that, they're wanting to go and, and out here the big thing is building ramps for people. Well, you've got youth who don't have any skills, but they're great grunt labor. There's an interconnectedness between all the ministries of the church that if we operate them in silos, we're going to miss the greater purpose of being part of the body of Christ. Uh, much like you wouldn't just want the youth to always operate separately, some churches do, and they reap the damage that comes from that. Um, so in the same way, apologetics is part of what what is incorporated into the life of the church. It's multidisciplinary, so it's it's going to be uh, it can be worked in uh, into almost anything that's done. Because even when you're out doing missions, and you know you're at somebody's house and they throw at you a hard question. Well, here comes your apologetics training right into play. So when we start thinking about it that way and when, when ministry leaders, they don't have to be apologists per se any more than they have to be professional evangelists to evangelize effectively. We, we miss that. There are career apologists. There are career evangelists. There are career pastors. But there is also the lay people who evangelize who make the defense, and who in a lot of ways serve as, as under-shepherds very effectively and very well. And when we, when we see apologetics as part of that within the church, it's just going to change the entire dynamic of what we're doing, and it's actually going to give the church ground to stand on in this cultural landslide that we may not get swept away. I think that's my big conclusion. Amen. All right, well... Thomas, I appreciate you being on the show and uh, look forward to having you back on in the future. And uh, thank, thank you, you for I giving enjoyed me an hour and a half of your time. Thank your wife for us. And uh, like <laughs> I say, look forward to having you you back on the show again. And we we wish uh, wish you the best. Uh, give us the church website on that again. Church website is uh, Bethel. Uh, yeah, BethelNC.net, uh, pretty simple. And uh, my personal website, I have a blog that I do, and it's uh, faithdefense.com, just like it sounds. And uh, that's kind of where I put a lot of my resources and the conferences we do out here. We we haven't uploaded the last one yet, but I try to upload. We try to record all breakouts, all the main sessions with videos, and all of that goes up on faithdefense.com. So, um Anyone who's looking for resources, I tend to, to funnel people that way. You can get a picture of the things that we're doing out here um, out in the middle of the cornfield. 
<laughs> and that's faithdefense.com, right? That is correct. Faithdefense.com is my personal and my church website is BethelNC.net. All right, brother. We look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you so much. God bless you, Devin. God bless. All right, folks, we will be back again next week, Theology Matters. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Help you guys see the need for apologetic. Um, feel free to go to Theology Matters with the Palouse and find our webpage. God bless.